Our contemporary wrestling with everything being treated as a marketable commodity, even human life, harkens back to Paul's ancient warning about pursuing things of the flesh rather than things of the spirit. This sermon is subtitled, Some iPhone Theology. In the name of the sower of seed, amen. All right, so I begin this morning with a bit of a confession. Anyone who knows me very well at all recognizes that I'm a techie or a geek or a technology nerd or someone who simply enjoys gadgets. Pick your term. They all apply. Indeed, it's gotten so bad at times that my wife has resorted to declaring computer-free zones in our apartment. Anyone who knows me very well knows that I spend a good deal of time on my iPhone. So I brought it in this morning. Yep, there it is, my iPhone. See it with its pretty Apple logo on it? And if you were to follow me during the day, you might think that I was expecting a phone call or a text message or an email or a new web page from no one other than God. It's over the top, isn't it? I'm hooked. This past Friday, I rose early with designs on the AT&T store in San Rafael. It was the day that the new improved iPhone was hitting the stores, and Apple had done what it always does best, generated fanatical demand for their newest, latest, coolest product. Sure enough, I got to the AT&T store at 6.45 in the morning, credit card in my pocket, to find a line of nearly 40 people already there. Starbucks cups in hand, waiting outside the door to be among the first to have the new iPhone that was launching at 8 o'clock sharp. If you think that was bad, there were people lining up over a week ago outside the the Apple store in New York City. So there you have it. There was laughter, a bit of embarrassment, a few quarters for the parking meter, and I was in line too, feeling smug as more and more people filed in behind me. I got there first, I thought. Truth be told, Apple had created in me and a million other people a rather expensive iPhone-shaped hole. We were bound and determined to get one to fill that little void, and literally, for Christ's sake, I already had one, and it's only a year old. One that works just fine, thank you very much. Maybe not as fast as the new one, maybe not as stazzy, maybe not as bleeding edge. Doesn't have GPS either, but it holds its own. It holds its own. Just the same, I'd been pining away for the new model for weeks, fed by a steady stream of advertising and commentary online, the happy sales pitch of a guy with glasses in a plain black sweater telling me how convenient, compact, productive, efficient, and just plain cool my life would be with the shiny new piece of plastic with a glass screen and a computer chip in my pocket. 
So for an hour, I enjoyed talking with the people around me in line. There was the lady with the two dogs. I guess they also needed two iPhones as well, and her son. They were having a lively chat about whether or not they could upgrade based on their current cellular plan and whether the new data plan was worth it. The father and his son in front of me talked about all the new programs that could now be downloaded to the gadget. The lady in front of them was furiously scribbling down all the, iPhone, all the phone numbers from her old iPhone's address book. She dropped hers in water a few weeks earlier. It didn't turn off anymore, and she couldn't synchronize it with her computer. So she had to turn to the archaic mode of pen and paper, or she'd lose all her important data when she upgraded. I confess I felt a bit sorry for her. Salespeople from the store came out, coffee in hand, to chat with us in line, to make sure we understood all that was required of us to get our hands on the new gadget, to make sure we understood our choices, to count the people in line, and compare that with the number of iPhones that were in the store, to make change for the parking meters. In other words, to make us as comfortable as possible as we desperately waited for the generous hospitality in that shiny, clean store so that they could take our money and our signature on the two-year contract that the new machine demands. <laughs> I worked on my sermon while standing in line and then began pondering what it meant that I was there. At 8 o'clock, the doors opened, and AT&T began processing the new iPhone customers five at a time, promising an average of 10 minutes per customer. And I was still in denial. I hadn't quite done the mental math. At 8.15, the line, already slow, got slower. And at 8.30, it had ground almost to a halt. The rolling launch of the new iPhone around the world was clogging up Apple's systems. The computers stopped talking to one another, and people were looking down the gauntlet of waiting two, three, four, five, six, a whole day in line to get the device. Everybody else was on their earlier iPhone models, canceling appointments and moving the day's schedule around so that they could keep their place. But I couldn't do that. At 8.45, I had to come back to Mill Valley. Morning prayer was on the agenda as well as a memorial service. I had to print my sermon, and there was much to be done in the office. And I was so heartsick. I couldn't get my iPhone on Friday with everybody else, and didn't I deserve one? For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Paul writes the church in Rome in today's epistle with those words. We ignore him at our own peril, don't we? For Paul, flesh is a technical theological term, one that appears intended to encompass all in our nature that opposes or ignores the life that God offers us. Flesh means our addiction to all that is not God, to our quixotic pursuit of more, with the insistence of scarcity biting impatiently at our heels, chasing us into selfish ambition. Flesh 
is the focus of our energies, all of our energies on that which cannot ultimately nurture us or give us true life. Last week I received an email from a parishioner reflecting on what it meant that some very clever folks in the Environmental Protection Agency had determined that the average American life is worth about 6.9 million in today's dollars. That's down, by the way, from about a million dollars five years ago. I wonder if that means the average has been dragged down by increasing poverty, less wealth, or simply the economic downturn, or they're calculating it differently. In any case, now we have a baseline on which the EPA can determine the efficacy of potential environmental legislation. Here's the math. Say a proposed piece of environmental policy costs industry and the country $40 billion, and it saves only $30 billion worth of human lives. The government then might want to reconsider. It wouldn't be economically practical. You can't make this stuff up. It was on the radio near the top of the news again this morning. Even George Orwell would have, well, a run for his money. While at two friends' wedding reception yesterday in Pacifica, someone asked me what living in Marin was like. I said that living in Marin was an interesting state of being sometimes. Then I said almost without thinking, half tongue-in-cheek, it could also be defined as a state of consuming. Isn't that true? Uncomfortably so? It is for me. But it's not just true of Marin. It's true across the country. It's true in Europe, in Latin America, in China. Japan and India, it's continuing to make inroads into Africa. With the economy and the housing market and the stock market and the consumer market all down for a time, we're all suffering symptoms of withdrawal. Yet our sufferings are nothing compared with much of the world's population as food prices soar and resources become scarce. Our voracious appetite for things has stripped the land and emptied the oceans. And yet, my life and yours too is commoditized and slapped with a dollar value. We risk seeing others, if those in power get wicked enough to trust only the narrow logic of pure numbers, we risk seeing others or even ourselves as expendable as though we can be weighed in the scales of scarcity and supply and demand and then be determined worthy or not of life itself. That's living according to the flesh, of course. It causes us to forget what is important. It blinds us to the realities that demand our true hearts and God-given selves. For me, it is the choice between sleep, prayer, and focused work, or standing in line, madly salivating along with the diehard fans for the latest iPhone. How silly it sounds to say such a thing before the altar of God. Our God, who seems, through the eyes of flesh at least, to be such a poor judge of worth. 
our God who picks foolish brothers like Jacob and Esau, who are so busy exchanging birthrights for a bowl of pottage, and yet our God picks them to give rise to nations. Our God who chooses a murderer named Moses to lead God's people out of bondage, who chooses a stinking shepherd named David to be a king, and who chooses a poor carpenter's fiancée to birth a largely illiterate Messiah who will be nailed to a tree. And turning to today's gospel, I want to say, come off it, Jesus. No good farmer would dare waste seed, no good gardener for that matter. But the sower ignores the well-tilled, carefully measured furrows and flings the seed about with wasteful abandon. So as I left the line for the iPhone on Friday, I said goodbye to the people I had gotten to know a little in that hour and a half. One man said to me, quite sincerely, I'm sorry, with a look of true pity that I had to go to work and I wouldn't be getting my hands on the shiny new gadget that morning. Yeah, I said, me too. But then as I was driving home, I realized, but not really. So I glanced at my older iPhone model on the dash. I saw this little empty iPhone-shaped hole in me. And God was getting in there. And through that grace, I began to wake up. I noticed the hills and the people clamoring to work the clouds, the sky, the sunshine. I noticed once again that I was preparing to lead a memorial service for someone who had given her lifetime so that countless children could have healthy lives in our community. How could I forget the blessings that I have received? How could I forget that the fields all around are rich with the grain planted by the sower nourished by a creation that doesn't toil in assembly lines or work out market strategies or weigh the cost of every action, every individual. My brothers and sisters, take the warning from our spiritual ancestor and brother Paul. Our economy and the oft-touted American way of life is largely made up of the flesh it has a great deal of allusion to it. It is all about human assigned value. Eight gigabyte iPhone for $199 or 16 gigabyte iPhone for $299. Convenience, market value, and economy of scale are assigned not by God, but by those carefully balancing the exchange of equity, goods, and services. If we obsess there, if we obsess there, we can lose our humanity. We get the proverbial cart before the horse. We can forget the life of the spirit we have been given through baptism. And we risk losing sight of every way, small and great, that we have been loved into being, and how we are called to share that love with others. And when we truly return home in our hearts and to our families, 
and our friends and our neighborhoods and communities, we are met by a God who is so abundantly crazy in economic terms that the seed is planted everywhere. A God who explodes our supply and demand theory with a simple formula of grace, and that is this, the supply of God's love for us and all creation is infinite and unbounded. Maybe the silver lining of this economic downturn is that it becomes for us a reality check, a graceful opportunity to get back in touch with what is important. A chance to really help those who are truly in need and to tend for a time our wayward hearts and our deepest longings for a God who loves us. Think about Christian economics this way. We call a small portion of bread and a sip of wine God, Christ's flesh and blood, spiritual things to which we are called to set our minds upon and literally consume. Consume it so that we may return to being made in God's image, more Christ-like, more imbued with grace for all the true needs of this world. And around this tiny sacrifice, worth not even pennies to the EPA or any other sensible government or economic agency, is built the compassion and love that truly nourishes our lives, that satisfies me in a way that no shiny new iPhone ever could, that calls me to give it up for greater things. And that is what God and I agreed to on the way back from San Rafael, Highway 101, our path, the draw of true need here at home, guiding the turns of the wheel. Geez, I thought it took God a while to break through all the hype, but God did. So the seeds are being sown. What kind of soil shall we be? Or shall we merely lay down and be a path on which the economic engines of this world roll? I leave those questions to you, my sisters and brothers in Christ, and to your God who loves you and wants us all, you and me, and all our neighbors and strangers, none other than whole. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley, dot org. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to be able to greet you in person very soon.